CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for being here on this Monday edition of Political Rewind. Um, it was obviously a very difficult weekend in the news, as uh, most of you are well aware by now. The news dominated by the shootings in El Paso and Dayton, Ohio. We've just learned that there was an additional death in the El Paso shootings. I think the number is 21 now, 22, Tom Faust is telling me. Um, and because these were such important events that that lead to a big, big conversation about what happens next. I want to devote a good portion of the show to that subject today. And of course, we'll talk about it from a national perspective, but also try to uh, put a Georgia lens on it. Jim Galloway, the lead political writer for the AJC, is is with me, as he is on Mondays and Fridays. Jim, um, I'm sure you Spent a lot of your weekend watching the news about this, as we all did. Uh, watching the news and in front of your computer, kind of uh, culling Twitter and passing along more Twitter. Yeah. Um, all right. We'll we'll get into all of those things in a couple of minutes. Across from you is Brian Robinson. He is the former communications director for former Governor Nathan Deal. Been in politics a long time. Worked on Capitol Hill for Lynn Westmoreland. Mm-hmm. Sure did. Uh, when he was a member of Congress, he cannot seem to get appointed to the Amtrak board. He is now the longest waiting, I think, appointee that the Trump administration has tried to put into some position in Washington. <laughs> yeah, that's that's going on Westmoreland time, though, man. That's how it goes. Yeah. But, hey, I'm sure Lynn will get on that board eventually. And all those problems at Amtrak, he'll fix them right up. He'll fix them. Um, and, of course, Brian now has his own consulting firm, does a little bit of politics, but also you do a lot of policy work. A lot of uh, public affairs communications, yep. Yeah. Okay. Dr. Andre Gillespie, Emory University political science professor, is uh, back with us. And... Um, she is the author of Race and the Obama Administration, Substance, Symbols, and Hope, which is your newest mm-hmm. book. But another book of yours that people might be interested in, given the presidential cycle right now, is The New Black Politician. You, it, it's, is it, it's not a biography of Cory Booker, but essentially it is, right? It just puts him in a larger public context, right? He wouldn't have let me interview him if it was a biography. So it is a discussion of Newark when he was mayor of Newark. Okay, fine. Thank <laughs> you for that. Uh, Theron Johnson is with us. Theron is uh, one of the most accomplished and respected Democratic political consultants in the Southeast. He has his own firm now, Paramount Consulting, which also does a lot of policy work. Uh, but also, I suspect before long, Theron, we'll hear that you found a candidate or two that you want to represent in the 2020 cycle. You can watch Theron every Sunday morning at 830 on Georgia Gang. He's a regular on that show right now. Uh, thanks for being here today, Theron. Thank you, Bill. Um, and finally, uh, I asked at the last minute, really, Allison Padilla Goodman to join us. She's the Southeast Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League. ADL monitors extremist activity, uh, keep, collects data about uh, their activities, looks at hate crimes and has a deep database and every year reports on where we stand in terms of hate crimes in this country. And, uh, Allison, your organization, as we'll get to in a few minutes, has been uh, deeply involved over this weekend in trying to work with law enforcement, I assume, federal agents, to help them understand who these shooters are. And you've also put out some information that will help us understand, put these crimes in context. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Bill. Well, thanks for being here. All right. uh, Let's get right to uh, the fact that at 10 o'clock this morning, the update on this story is that about four hours ago, the uh, president, who had already made a couple of comments about uh, the shootings over the weekend, including some tweets, finally gave a much more formal statement on teleprompter, a written uh, statement. Let's just listen to about a minute of that and, and, and have a conversation at first based on how we feel about what he said. Here's President Trump. The shooter in El Paso posted a manifesto online consumed by racist hate. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. These sinister ideologies must be defeated. 
Hate has no place in America. Hatred warps the mind, ravages the heart, and devours the soul. We have asked the FBI to identify all further resources they need to investigate and disrupt hate crimes and domestic terrorism, whatever they need. We must recognize that the Internet has provided a dangerous avenue to radicalize, disturb minds, and perform demented acts. We must shine light on the dark recesses of the Internet and stop mass murders before they start. Andra, taking the statement just on its own, just on the face of the statement the president made today, was it the right thing to say? He said all of the right words, but the context is important. And so I would probably characterize it as right words, wrong vessel. Um, And so without context, without thinking about the sort of uh, the vitriol that has come from his own Twitter feed, it's really hard to take those things as being sincere. So, you know, I appreciated the gesture. I appreciated his composure. But on the other hand, I mean, I put this on Twitter. I'm like, charity begins at home. And so, you know, if he had said, you know, I've been thinking a lot this weekend. I thought a lot about the things that I said. And you mentioned my first book, uh, my, the, my first monograph. There was an edited volume before then. One of the people who encouraged me to write that book was Elijah Cummings, now wife, who's also a political scientist. Um, yeah. When I think about that, like that fight that was happening right before that. And when I think about the fight with the squad the week before that, when I think about the dual competing um uh, rallies that were hosted last year with him and, and Beto O'Rourke, you know, right sort of on the border. You know, I, I think that there has to be some reflection. And the president, especially if he's going to reach across the aisle, is going to have to take responsibility for having up the ante and having made it OK to think that you could act in this kind of way. All right. Somebody jump in. Who's next? Who wants to talk next about it? Brian? I don't think anybody can say that he's said it's OK to commit mass murder. And if he had not said the words that he said, which, by the way, were the right words, and it was very well put, and it was the right tone, liberals and Democrats would be bashing him for not saying exactly what he said. It's a situation where no matter what he does, he's going to get bashed for it. What he said was appropriate. It is a sort of healing message that we need at this moment. That is the job of the president. And he did what he's supposed to do today. I congratulate him. He gets called out all the time. For not saying white supremacy. I just heard it right there on that audio. I heard it. He said it. It is the first time, apparently, uh, to the best of our knowledge, Theron, that he's used that expression. People have been urging him to to be willing to acknowledge that. But what I think I heard Andre Gillespie say is, um, without putting this into context, which the president did not do, that perhaps one way to put it in context would have been for him to say, I recognize that some of my rhetoric may have inflamed people. Whether it led them to violence, I have no way of knowing, but I I, I certainly uh, have to give myself some... I have to reflect upon my own language and how I might have played a role in this. Well, what we just experienced and just heard is kind of twofold. So let's, let's start with one of the things I want to focus on first. It's words versus deeds. We've heard similar words from this president before about looking at some measures to deal with gun safety and gun control in this country. He has sort of flirted with the idea of tackling the mental illness component of this. But then after that meeting, which members of Congress and others have heard him talk about, he totally went the opposite direction. The second thing is is to, to echo what Dr. Gillespie said, which I wholeheartedly agree with, is that he took no personal responsibility as a leader of this country. There was no acknowledgement that the Language that was written in a manifesto on a particular website mirrored, if not sort of was a duplicative expression of what he has said at many of his rallies and what he said on some of these conservative channels. And so I think what the president missed today, Bill, was, yes, he finally did use the the term white supremacist. And my good friend Brian Robinson know what I'm going to say. Like, OK, he, he does not deserve a medal of freedom for saying something that he should have said a long time ago. What was missing is empathy. What was missing is personal responsibility. What was missing is sort of the acknowledgement of him just a week ago saying and spurring the hate at these rallies, which some of these people— 
that have been basically a part of this domestic terrorism that is going on in this country where he is linked to. Therein lies the, 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 the issue. What I would like for this president to do now is that he's read this teleprompter and he even messed up one of the cities doing the teleprompter speech is to now follow up tomorrow with the American people and work in a bipartisan manner to do something about this domestic terrorism that's happening in our country right now. Yeah, I think I think what we know by now is that there are two Donald Trumps in the White House. There's the Donald Trump who reads from a teleprompter, and then there is the extraneous, extemporaneous Donald Trump who stands in front of rallies and who, who, who gets on Twitter. Yes, yeah, I agree with Brian. He did. Say, he did say many of the right things. He used the word white white uh, supremacy, which is something we need to stop and yes, say. Yes, good for yes. him. Finally, right, right. He did ascribe uh, some of these shootings to ideology. He mixed it up with mental illness, and I think there's a difference. And I think we need to talk about that that, that later on. Uh, he did talk about possibly some some movement on the background checks. He said something nice about the red flag issues. I don't know if it was uh, about, about whether it was an endorsement or not. But I think the key is 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 really is what Donald Trump are we going to see in, uh, tomorrow morning? Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Andra. Uh, first of all, he did uh, talk more about mental health. Certainly didn't talk about any measures to slow down uh, production of guns, mm-hmm. uh, distribution of guns, how easy it is to get a weapon. Uh, he, like a lot of people, like a lot of Republicans, said the issue is uh, one of dealing with people with mental health problems. When uh, Jim talks about red flag, that's what he's talking about is these efforts to try to keep hands perhaps out of the hands, uh, guns out of the hands of people with mental uh, documented mental illnesses. We've had some legislation in Georgia on that that Jen Jordan has sponsored that is still waiting in the wings. Um, but so first he talked mental health. And then not in this statement, but on Twitter, when he talked about any kind of gun control measures, he said we should pair them with an immigration bill. Now, both of these shooters, uh, law enforcement tell us, were American citizens, and yet the president took it, you know, took this moment to say, well, maybe we need some gun safety measures, but why don't we wrap them up with immigration? It, it's a mixed message that may, has reason for people to wonder about. I was actually worried before the speech because I had seen that report, and, you know, about tying it to immigration that he was going to make some really crass bargain. Like, give me my wall and you'll get some gun control off of it. I was very thankful that that actually was not President Trump's speech. And I hope he doesn't come back and tweet that out tomorrow um, to make that even more explicit, because I just thought that that would be so craven and so crass um, to be able to do. So I'm I'm hoping that that we're not going to go in that direction. But, you know, this thing about mental illness, while I completely agree that somebody who is, you know, sort of deep in the throes of struggling with mental illness shouldn't have access to weapons. And I think red flags can be broader to talk about people who've got a history of violent behavior and threats not actually being, you know, domestic violence, not being allowed to have guns. And we want to have that discussion. I also am really um, concerned about people bringing up mental illness to not deal with evil um, and to deal with racism. Um, right. No, it's just you being wrong and having wrong headed ideas. Um, and and, and I'm, I'm very concerned. This is something actually that I, I, I've, I've been studying with a student. We're not we don't have findings or anything to publish yet. But this is a project that I was actively working on with a student last semester. And it seems that this is, again, not taking responsibility for your actions. Oh, it's just some sick, deranged person. No, it's a bigot that you goaded into perhaps like, you know, thinking that he could do certain things with impunity. So I'm not saying that Donald Trump pulled the trigger. He didn't pull the trigger, but he created a climate where certain people felt more emboldened than they would have perhaps five or ten years ago to say or do things that are just insane. Yeah, if, if I could, if I could build, on I that, shouldn't uh, use the term insane if I'm yeah. going to critique people for using it. But yeah, who did just do stuff that like they might have sort of felt that they couldn't do before? Right. If, if I can build on that, Andra, uh, one thing, Bill, that I've seen, uh, you know, on CNN, uh, MSNBC, and Fox, you know, when when they talk about the shooter in El Paso, uh, you know, they talk about his rant, his screed. Uh, that's not a rant. It's not a screed. I've read. I've read that it was. It was written by a, a cogent human being who had a specific set of beliefs, and he laid them out in very logical fashion, according to his head. 
That was, I mean, he, this wasn't, uh, you, can't, you can't call this man mentally ill. He had a belief system, and he has acted on his belief system. Uh, Brian, uh, you're, you can't, uh, when you see the manifesto uh, that was pushed out right before the shootings began, uh, you can't step away from the fact that these seem clearly to have been motivated by hatred. Uh, and you also can't escape the notion that President Trump's language ramps up hatred. So how do you, as a Republican, reconcile that? Well, there, there seems to be a lot in what Dr. Gillespie was saying that nothing short of Donald Trump saying, hey, this is all my fault. I'm sorry. I'm going to be better. Uh, Republicans don't believe don't, – we don't accept that premise at all. You know, what, what you're seeing with attacks like this is not happening just in this country. It's happening globally. This just happened in New Zealand for the exact same reasons. You've seen acts of violence happen uh, in Europe, not necessarily mass shootings, but there are many acts of violence, uh, particularly with the, all the refugees that have come into Europe over the last few years, and you're seeing a political reaction to that. So you're seeing this happening all over the world. The idea that we are different, uh, the only thing that makes us different is the gun culture here is different than in other parts of the world. But this phenomenon, this reaction to mass immigration, it's happening everywhere. We're not unique. We're not special. There is uh, there is something in how we are wired uh, tribally that is that is innate, and it's not just white people. It's not just white nationalism. It's not just white supremacy. It is something that you see everywhere. You would see the same thing if you had a million non-Koreans moving to South Korea Farron? or a million non-Japanese moving to Japan. Farron? Yeah. The, the thing that frustrates me the most about this um, conversation that we all are digging deep to have in a very pragmatic and sort of civil way is that let's not lose the fat bill that this shooter that uh, Jim just kind of talked about literally went out to kill Latino Americans or people who were here. And when we hear the president of the United States use the term invasion and when someone yells out at his rally, what do we do to prevent this invasion from happening? And someone says, shoot them. The president laughs. And so where I totally disagree with Brian is this. There's two types of leadership, right? There's many types of leadership, but there's leadership in the White House where you're reactionary and you're proactive. What this president has not done is been proactive, has been very reactive today, but has not been proactive in dealing with the issue around guns and how certain individuals, many of whom are white nationalists, are using the gun as a opportunity, as a vehicle, as a, as a um, you know, basically as a hatred um, way of basically killing innocent people. All right. Let me I know, Andre, you want to jump in. Let me get uh, Allison Goodman in here, Padilla Goodman in here, and then uh, we can all have a bigger conversation about this. Allison, when something like this happens, ADL is on the spot immediately. You're looking at your database to see if you have information about, say, the El Paso shooter, the Dayton shooter. You're talking to the, the feds about what you know and don't know. Your national office uh, on the weekend issued a statement saying, among other things, that the El Paso shooting is the third deadliest act of violence by a domestic extremist uh, in the last 50 years, right? Correct. Um, it's been a hard few days uh, and not an unusual few days, I should say. Uh, this is the third deadliest attack by violent extremists in the U.S. in the past 50 years, third only to Oklahoma City and Orlando Pulse nightclub, um, the second deadliest right-wing extremist attack. Uh, and we've been tracking the data and looking over a span of um, 10 years, and we see um, kind of looking at Brian's point about New Zealand, and yes, there are issues across the globe, but we have a problem with white supremacy here in the U.S., and it's a problem that we don't put enough attention to. Over three-quarters of violent murders related to extremists in the past 10 years were at the hands of white supremacists. Yet it is an issue that is so deprioritized and defunded nationally, and it's one that we just don't talk enough about. Um, looking at 
the, so we've spent a lot of time looking at the manifesto, looking at the background, looking at kind of the online chatter. Um, and there's much that is very usual and unusual about this case. Um, the usual is he was inspired by um, the New Zealand shooter in Christchurch um, and inspired by that action. Uh, he said that he wanted to kill as many Mexicans as he could, and that was his intent. Um, he is concerned about a Hispanic invasion. Um, but uh, as somebody said earlier, uh, his manifesto was very coherent and very articulate. Um, he also had some pieces that were slightly unusual compared to some of the other attacks we've seen. Um, he had some derogatory comments about corporations and automation that are a little strange, but not totally unheard of. Um, what's pretty unusual is uh, the manifesto is fairly free of typical like slogans and language and slurs, um, which might imply that he was kind of self-radicalized and self-radicalized recently. Um, and that's another issue that we have that we're not spending enough time on is the rise of online hatred and how we respond. Look, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, as a, and additionally, Gab and 8chan and all of these other groups, these are companies. They have the ability to kick off users and to not. And there's a choice being made right now. Yeah, this uh, manifesto was posted on 8chan, yep. which, if I've got this right, was created as a response to 4chan, which initially was established to be a site where people could anonymously post whatever they wanted to and initially was all about no judgment about whatever you put up, you put up, we don't interfere, except 4chan started saying, no, there's some content we won't accept. So 8chan was founded for all of those people who didn't want to be censored to go to NHN, it's a free-for-all. Right. Platform first, free speech, free-for-all. Um, and we've seen it cause some problems. And, you know, this was a big one. This was somebody who obviously became radicalized online. Um, the actions really highlight some trends we're seeing in the white supremacist movement generally. And I should say they sometimes hit close to home here in Georgia, too. Um, you know, a major kind of tenet of the white supremacist movement is um, anti-immigrant sentiment. Um, and that is something that has kind of existed on the fringes and the extremes of our society for many years. And now it's pretty much mainstream. And a lot of the white supremacists are seeing this is their time, right? Congress is talking about immigration and using anti-immigrant rhetoric in ways that they find comfortable in their space. Uh, about a year and a half ago, one group here in Atlanta dropped a 50-foot banner off of the Georgia Tech overpass that said, End Immigration Now, with the sign of an alt-right group. An alt-right group that never before would have existed on the streets and in the sunlight is now feeling like they can drop a banner on one of the busiest all intersections right. in the country. All right. So having heard all of what you just said, everybody, let's give you all an opportunity to jump in. I know you wanted to get involved a minute ago, Andra. So, you know, I want to acknowledge that Brian is right, that this type of hatred is not just limited to America. The difference here is our access to guns, um, you know, which is a problem and, and, and part of the reason why this debate is coming up. And I think he's right because I think this gets to a larger um, human problem, larger spiritual problem that we have a tendency to hate people. Um, for whatever reasons, and I know Brian and I share a faith tradition, and all I couldn't help but think about was, like, you know, whoever hated this brother is a murderer. So I was sitting over here in the back just sort of checking what brother meant in the Greek just to be sure that I was accurate about those I kinds of things. I was checking the Greek, too, at the same time. <laughs> at the same time. But, I mean, it's it's this idea that if even if you aren't the one pulling the trigger, even if you're not the one putting the gun or the explosive device or whatever it is on a person's hand, if you're sitting there and you're fomenting that type of, 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 of language – you are spiritually, I would argue, an accessory to murder. Um, and I think that that's the whole point of that. And so that, that's that's the issue that I have with the president's rhetoric. That's the issue I have with members of his party not always standing up to him and condemning it in the strongest possible terms. I would love for this to be the, the moment of the sea change, but we have to wait and see because we've been disappointed so many times. You know, Theron, uh, uh Allison talks about we don't pay enough attention to white extremism in this country. The president, to some extent, at least gave a nod to it uh, in his uh, statement today. But uh, – 
But Jim Galloway posted something in Political Insider uh, the other day in which was Christopher Wray testifying about the Robert Mueller uh, uh, case, uh, the special prosecutor. And in the middle of that, he also talked about extremist activity in this country. And he really, it seemed to me, and Jim, I'll let you weigh in on this after I give Theron a shot at this, he, to, the way I heard it, he, was, he said we're still a little more concerned about what they call homegrown terrorism, which to them is somebody who's radicalized into a, a jihadist uh, a point, play, uh, point of view more than they are about domestic terrorism, which kind of makes Allison's point that we're not paying enough attention to these guys. Well, first of all, Allison, I want to thank you and for your organization, all the great work that you do. And listen, you know, this is very difficult for us as Americans to talk about. And it's very difficult, particularly for my white brothers and sisters to talk about. But I'm a black man living in the United States of America. So my gender, my race is highlighted in a negative light a lot. So I don't care if certain people feel uncomfortable talking about it. It's just something that we've got to do. So back to your question, and Allison is right. The white supremacists that we know that's going on and the the acts of violence that they're being able to have with the loose gun laws and gun control that we have in this country, compounded with the rhetoric that we're hearing from the president, is now, again, an opportunity for the country to do more. And so my thing is what I was saying early on to Allison's point. Yes, she just spelled out the data that shows that for decades, for for a long time, there has not been an emphasis on domestic terrorism in this country. And so when we talked about it before this president became president, Bill, let's not forget the time that we were in. Domestic terrorism has been spewed on these websites, and she just showed us the data for a long time, even going back to when President Clinton was president. It was there with President Bush, and Lord knows it was so compartmentalized and disguised when President Obama was a president. But now, because, again, let's not miss the fact, guys, we cannot let President Trump off the hook. He got elected by spurring this hate and basically encouraging these people to be anti-immigrant, to be anti-undocumented immigrants. And he got into the White House on that message. And up until today, Bill, he has tripled down on that message. And so I'm just not going to be one of these Americans that let white Americans who feel uncomfortable talking about this off the hook. And I'm damn sure not going to let the president of the United States off the hook because he finally after being in office for a countless amount of months, decided to use the term white supremacy. Jim and then Brian? Yeah, uh, okay, on uh, the, the the clip that I posted of, of Chris Ray, he was in a, in, a, yeah. in a conversation with Dick Durbin, the Democrat out of Illinois, and basically Ray, he said some very interesting things. Yes, you're right, he did, he t- did talk about homegrown terrorists as terrorists who had contact with foreign agents. Right. And that was a greater concern to 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 uh, national security concern and, and and at one level yeah I can I can I can understand that but he also said something very interesting in that the number of arrests not the number of investigations but the number of arrests of of the the so-called home homegrown jihadists and domestic jihadists were roughly equal yeah and 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 he said that was extremely worried worrying on on the domestic level and you know it, it's it's I, I get back to this idea of of its ideology, you know. I mean, one, uh, the other thing that Ray said was they're they're not about ideology. They they investigate violence, okay. But but white nationalism is an ideology as much as as jihad uh, is Islamic extremism is, and 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 I think we start have to start taking account of that. Ryan, I want to go uh, at something that Theron said, not to disagree with him, but to... Uh, yeah, we didn't want you and Theron to disagree about anything on this show. That would be so bizarre. <laughs> but he said white people don't like talking about this, or they, or they feel awkward. Let me, let, let me tell you why. It's because if you don't say things that are, that are the politically correct talking points, that are the, that is the liberal talking point line, you're called a racist. You're not allowed to speak in nuance. You're not allowed to bring any perspective that's outside of that political correct spectrum. And so you get you get shouted down. You get shamed. You get socially sanctioned. Okay, so give, give, course, let's, let's have an example. 
Well, look, if you are against mass immigration, if you are for a merit-based immigration system, if you are for drastically reducing the number of people who come here as immigrants, you're a racist. And, and your opinion is completely shot down from that point on. Nothing you say is valid. You are a racist. And, 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 and now you are implicitly at fault for mass murder. Well, you know, you're for not letting everybody who wants to come in come in. Therefore, this guy's manifesto is right up your alley. You have emboldened him. And that's, that's offensive. And how, and how can you have a rational conversation in that context? You can't. And so, of course, you're uncomfortable talking about it because you're going to be called a racist. Nobody wants to be called that. Uh, well, I mean, so, Brian, I mean, here's the thing, though. If, if President Trump hadn't started off his campaign calling Mexicans and rapists. And y'all are about to prove my point here by ganging up. With no, no, no. I, that's, well, what's I, that's what's coming. Yeah, but you know I love you, Brian. But but, but the, I think the issue is, is that if he had talked about, you know, changing the merit-based system without having used dog whistles and completely audible whistles that related to sort of racially trashing an ethnic group in the United States, we might be able to have that type of conversation. But, like, he can't turn on the spigot of hateful language and then cut it off and act like it's just substantive. I can't separate the substance from the context in which it has been shared. But Trump isn't the only person who talks about this. He's not the only person who talk. I, I don't use that sort of language, and and here I'm I'm about to be called a racist. I, I can feel it coming. No, let me jump in here. Tom Faust, am I going to get fired if we don't take a break? No, I'm not. Am I? All right, I'm, let's I'm, keep I'm, talking. No, Brian, I believe not. We're not going to debate on this, but this is where I think. <laughs> <laughs> what we're trying to say, Brian, and I'm not calling you a racist because you know I get called a racist a lot with the shows that we do. I mean, you can go <laughs> to the Georgia Gang um, Facebook page and watch the countless amount of white people who call me a racist. Yes, a black man does get called a racist. I bet I'm being called a racist yeah, right now. On the, on the but, 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 but the point I want to, to, to Dr. Gillespie's point, Brian, is no one, whether you're black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, is for people coming to this country to harm Americans. I'm not for that, okay? No one is no one is for that. But I think the, the fact that you're missing is that the Republican members of the House and the Senate and leadership has refused to come out and speak out against this president. And I want to commend you. You have done it countlessly. You did it before many before of us it was popular that he was not going to win. <laughs> so I'm going to compliment you for doing that. But you have a very tough balance, the same balance that I had to strike when I was defending President Obama on this very show when he was a president, right, and when, when Hillary Clinton was running. Allison, can I jump, get you back in here? Because it strikes me that this conversation right now is uh, exactly why an organization, like your organization, is in such an important place this at this moment, because... There's no ill will at this table. Brian and Theron are good friends. Andre had been on the show with them many times. Jim and I are. But, but in the wrong hands, this kind of conversation does in fact lead to the hatred that you monitor and that you see turn into violence. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, And I'm just reminded, thinking that today, uh, seven years ago, was the attack on the Sikh temple in Wisconsin by Wade Michael Page, where six members of a Sikh community were killed and murdered in their synagogue. You know, we've seen the attacks at the Mother Emanuel in in Charleston, Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, and now this. I think most of us who are um, concerned about hate understand that it, it is hard times for all of us, and we're all in this together, and nobody is safe. All right, real quick, um, uh, because I, 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 we should do a whole show on this, but how have you seen in the southeast region, you have Georgia, Tennessee. Alabama, South Carolina, Tennessee. Uh, how have incidents of, how have hate crimes increased, decreased over, during the, Obama, uh, the uh, uh, Trump years? Uh, so at ADL, we monitor and track all forms of extremism. We pay a lot of attention to anti-Semitism because it's who we are, uh, but also because we understand that anti-Semitism is and always has been a barometer for other forms of hatred, and it goes hand in hand. So our data on anti-Semitism is pretty specific. And 2017 saw the largest spike in anti-Semitic incidents in our audit's history. Uh, 2018 saw the third highest number of anti-Semitic incidents in our audit's history. 
and the largest increase in violent assaults against Jews. Now, when I look at that data and wonder, is this in practice and affecting everyone? Well, yes, because in 20, the last year of hate crimes data available, we saw a 17% increase in hate crimes, which is three times the increase of the previous year. And there were huge attacks and increases against Latinos and Jews. And African-Americans are year after year the largest targeted category, bar none, Asian-Americans, Native Americans, you name it. Um, yeah. So here's a simple example of hatred. Andra. Yeah, no, I mean, just going with that. I mean, we talked about this. Some of this is in my book where I look at what hate crimes look at on the basis of race over the course of the Obama administration. It ticks up a little from 2014 to 15, but it, it was going down, um, particularly for African-Americans who by far were most the most group most likely to be targeted. But if we break that down by race, um, I'm counting an 18 percent increase from 2016 to 2017. I could have done my math wrong this morning when I went to look that up. And then for religion, it was a 22 percent increase wow. from the year before. Wow. So, yeah. but if I can bring a love of humanization bill to this this conversation, you know, a, a very uncomfortable conversation I had to have with my wife last night. And, you know, we live in Buckhead and, you know, we have been fortunate enough and blessed by God to have the means to live in a very, you know, wealthy part of town. But we also know that this is a part of town that has had its trouble and and struggles with crime. And my wife is very scared of guns. She is believes in taking that the government needs to get more in place to make sure that people who own guns know how to use them responsibly. But a very uncomfortable conversation we had to have last night is that whether or not we as a couple now who want to have children who live in this area of Atlanta, whether or not we should actually go purchase a gun to protect ourselves. And I think that's the one thing I don't want our listeners to know that we're not feeling in our hearts, that there were still innocent Americans who were gunned down innocently while they were just shopping in Walmart and just living their everyday lives. And I think for our listeners, I can just feel it in my spirit, Bill, that there are people that are terrified right now because they don't know how to protect themselves. Because up until now, this country has never been the country where we now as Americans really, really have to contemplate when we leave our house and go anywhere to a church, to a mall, to a school, whether or not we're going to be gunned down and we can keep ourselves safe. I just don't want our listeners to not know that we are feeling that same pain that I think a lot of them are feeling right now. Well, I mean, I think that's the gun violence part of the discussion, and that's an important policy discussion, but at least as far as the racial terror sort of part of this, you know, we come from the tradition where we would consider the Ku Klux Klan a terrorist group, right? Because that is what they did. Um, You know, ADL would be right there with you on that one. Yeah, I mean, if you go to Montgomery and you see the lynching memorial and you see what happens, and especially because it's broken down by day, and when you see those days where like 20 people die and you know kind of what happened, um, one of my friends would talk about how his grandmother would remark about the lynching tree in there in her Louisiana hometown. And the reason why it got that was because it must have happened there more than once. Um, I remembered as a college student doing archival work in reading um, and I went to the University of Virginia. So I lived in Charlottesville, Virginia for four years. You know that, you know, they would tell young women to not walk outside at certain times of day. You know, I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure whether or not Charlottesville was a sundown town or not, because there were laws that said black people needed to be indoors at sundown. But it was for their safety. And it was because they actually risked being sexually assaulted by white men who just thought that they could do that. So people have lived in racial terror every day. This was just another poignant reminder that in 2019, this would happen and that it would happen in places where you don't expect it. Right. And Jim, I did think some of the most poignant testimony I heard, and and Theron really referred to it, is um, you go to the mall, you go to Walmart. It's an activity we all relate to completely. We think about our kids going to the mall, our teenagers to hang out. Um, The notion that suddenly that is not a safe space, Theron talks about personalizing it. That brings it home that a Sunday, a Saturday morning trip to the mall ends up being a moment of, yes, a back to school school shopping trip. trip. And and then and, and we have not mentioned it, Bill, but we we do need to bring Dayton into this. Yes, I mean, and that was that was in a in a highly popular section uh, of Dayton's nightlife. I mean, Ned Pepper's is a very popular restaurant, right. and the shooting occurred right right after. One one another thing we haven't really kind of gotten at it is it is uh, it's it's it. Uh, the the equipment being used yeah. the 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 ammunition the 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 100 round magazines the 
we've we've heard and we've heard and heard again that the only way to stop a good man with a uh, bad man with a gun is a good man with a gun. Well, we had a, a a good man with a gun who rode toward Dayton with his sister. She went one way, he went another. Put on body armor, armor, got his weapons out, and he became a bad man with a gun. In a in a split second, he became a bad man with a gun. And he was he was killed within within a minute, and nine people died, fourteen people were wounded by the gunfire. Uh, Tom In, Faust, including the little sister. Yeah, Tom Faust, Tom Faust gathered some uh, information on that. Uh, you're right; they took out the shooter within thirty seconds of the first shot fired, but he was able to get off 41 rounds in that 30 seconds, and he had a magazine holding at least 250 yeah. rounds. Uh, so, you know, Brian, and that brings us to another conversation we're going to do on another show in addition to talking about it at least briefly here, which is at a certain point, Republicans have their backs up against the wall a little more than ever, I think, in terms of continuing to argue that semi-automatic weapons uh, ought to be available to the general public. I mean, there's an, it, it, there is every poll that we look at says that the American people would like some restrictions on the kind of weapons that are available, and Republicans aren't just ready to turn that corner. Well, this is a complex issue because that's what polls say, but those polls don't very well measure intensity. And... I, there, there may be a spectrum where maybe moving toward a place where there is that intensity, but the fact is, you still cannot win a primary on the Republican side without being a staunch supporter of the Second Amendment. And on the practical side of it, we now have more than three hundred million guns in American homes. What is banning? Yeah, making them? Andres point that people have these attitudes in other countries, but not as many guns as we do in the United States, and they don't have a president that actually says the type of things that President so, Trump says. But, but look, I mean, Charleston happened under President Obama. We had a, we had a ton of mass shootings under President Obama. No Republican that I remember said. You know, President Obama is really to blame for all of this is because he's president. Therefore, you know, we didn't say that. I don't. I don't think. I don't remember that. Uh, but, right. I mean, but President Obama. <laughs> I mean, President Obama I, has I, said crazy stuff. I, I have been, absolutely. I said have it. been told but, I got to get at least one break in here. But Allison, before I do, I want to share with you. Talk about how hatred comes in little doses. Um, Tom Faust found this. Johnny Isaacson sent out a tweet this morning, apparently, and I won't read the whole thing. Or he guess that he sent it out on Saturday. Take my word for it, bone fractures are no fun. Wishing a speedy recovery to my friend Mitch, meaning Mitch McConnell, as he heals. And he goes on saying nobody works harder and that sort of thing. Uh, that inspired dozens and dozens of people responding, saying things like uh, this. Wish you cared about the people murdered this weekend as much as your friend's bone fracture um, uh uh, he said, one of them says, so long as you support Trump, you are complicit in these terrorism deaths. Neither is being killed by a gunshot, Johnny. Neither is that painful. A two-month-old baby lies in El Paso Hospital with broken bones. Goes on with that. And you're worried about uh, Mitch McConnell's injuries from a fall. You see this all the time, this kind of hatred. Sure. I mean, social media makes it so easy right now, right? Anybody can jump on Twitter, jump on Instagram, post something like something. We see it happen more and more with kids more than anyone, and it lasts and follows them forever. Um, and it replicates and doesn't go away. All right. We got to get a break in. I also know you've got a, uh, some business to take care of. Could, could we get a promise from you that we can have you come back and let's drill down even more on the kind of work you're doing and how it plays into all of this? This is an issue that's not going away. Can we do that? Absolutely. All right. Allison Padilla Goodman, thank you so much for joining us from the Anti-Defamation League today. All right. I got to get one break in or I am going to be out the door, which I suppose some of you out there might think would be a good thing. I don't. This is Political Rewind. As the nation comes to grips with two mass shootings over the weekend, voices from the cities who are mourning so much loss, Dayton and El Paso. We've always been welcoming our immigrants. We're supposed to be the Ellis Island of the Southwest. I'm Audie Cornish. We remember the victims and hear the latest on the investigations in El Paso and Dayton this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org.
On the next Fresh Air, Terry talks to filmmaker Rodney Evans. He's lost much of his vision, but he's still making movies. His new documentary, Vision Portraits, is about how he and three other blind or visually impaired artists, a writer, a dancer, and a photographer, continue to do their work. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. Or ask your smart speaker to play GPB. Theron, uh, I talked about red flag legislation uh, downtown, and I attributed it to Jen Jordan. I apparently missed I, – I got it wrong because you got a text from uh, Matthew Wilson. Tell me, yeah, what did he say? New rep- uh, state representative Matthew Wilson. Uh, and, Bill, this is a testament to you that you know that legislators are listening. Yeah, I'm glad they do, thank goodness. <laughs> um, but basically, um, the, the bill that you were referring to is a bill, uh, House Bill 435, that he introduced that deals with red flagging. Her, her Senator Jen Jordan's bill is a little different. Uh, it, it basically says no one with a conviction conviction of domestic violence can have a firearm. Oh, that's exactly yeah. right. Thank you for the correction. Jordan's is domestic violence. His is mental conditions. Is that right? Yeah, heavy focus on mental conditions. Okay, yeah. gotcha. By the way, Allison Padilla-Goodman says, I'll stick around until I absolutely have to leave. <laughs> uh, Jim, this is a good time to t- shift to Georgia, actually. We've had... Uh, Obviously, we've had responses from Democratic legislators and members of Congress, at least some, and they're mostly, for the most part, calling for more gun safety measures, restriction members. We're hearing very little so far, at least we have here at GPB, from Republicans, uh, and the messaging we have had is, like, for instance, we have not talked to Johnny Isaacson, gotten him to comment. Uh, David Perdue uh, was unavailable, at least for us. Your people Mm -hmm. may have gotten to him. Uh, But there's no reason to think that, at least as this relates to new gun laws, it's going to break down on anything but partisan lines, is there? Not not immediately. Not immediately. But but I've, I've got to tell you, you know, this this is this is this is a, 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 a an issue of particular interest to 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 educated women voters and they are the swing target for 2020. How do you think about that, Brian? Because you actually you know have reasons to be a little bit uh, cautious about what happens in suburban districts, especially the seventh congressional district. Right. You know, and what Georgia Republicans have done, and it's not just a Georgia Republican strategy. It reflects national trend lines. And you sort of you don't get to create your own trend lines in your own state. We're, 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 we're Americans and we reflect the country. And what you're seeing is the Republican base becoming more rural, more exurban and, and losing a bit of the suburban base. And look, uh, one thing we hear here in the Atlanta media is like, for example, the heartbeat bill was not popular with white, independent women in the suburbs. That's probably true. It still isn't. Uh, but you go out, you go a little outside the donut, and you go meet, uh, talk to women voters, particularly white voters. They're thrilled with the So on bills. the gun so, issue, are you going to lose suburban women who want tighter gun controls but hope to make it up in those ex-urban areas? Is that what you're saying? I think it's hard to make the argument that Lucy McBath, whose main issue is gun control— that she won because of that issue. I don't. I don't believe that. I reject that. I believe that she won because there was a national trend where Democrats were picking up these well, Republican Sarah, and Lucy McBath's people would be the first to say they ran on health care. They showcased yeah. health care. Not That's yes, not what I've heard. yes. Was, the underlying message was her loss of a son no, to no, gun and, violence. And, and quickly, yeah, she definitely had um, you know different issues that she ran on health care and. Gun safety and gun control, one of them. But here's what gun I want to say. Gun <laughs> But this is what I want to say. You know, I, I sit beside, you mentioned again, I'm not trying to pump up Georgia again, but I sit beside Phil Kent, who's a staunch believer of the Second Amendment. And I know other people uh, who are actually uh, Second Amendment believers who are a part of the Republican Party. I think what, what Brian is also missing here, Brian, I think that those folks do not condone people with mental illness, people who actually get a gun to go out and basically kill people. So I think that the, the risk of the Republican Party runs is not just losing these disaffected Republicans who are suburban women. I think also some of these folks who are Second Amendment people who support it wholeheartedly are looking at what's going on in this country and having second thoughts. Allison, um, I know the ADL is uh, staunchly nonpartisan, but how do you look at, I mean, but you, the, the information you gather tells you uh, tells all, the rest of us an awful lot about the guns in this country and how prolific they are. 
we tend to focus much more on the extremism, and I should also mention the hate crimes, right. which Georgia is still one of five states without a hate crime statute. Yeah. So if this were to happen in Georgia, our story would be really, really different here. Um, and that is something we should all be concerned about and watching, I think. For you know, Andrew, that's a really good point. Um, we, we, we know that in, uh, in the Dayton uh, shooting uh, that a hate crime statute can be applied um, or no, it's in El Paso. The, da- the Dayton shooter is the one who was killed. I'm sorry. It's in El Paso, yep. right, where they're, they're going to they, – they look like they're going to apply a hate crime statute in his prosecution as well as um, uh, uh, beyond the terrorist, domestic terrorism statutes. We can't do that here. Yeah. So, I mean, so then I think the question would become whether or not there are federal charges where you would be able to invoke that type of thing. So that overlapping federalism kind of comes in handy um, in those kinds of situations. Um, You know, this is just, you know, a really unfortunate thing where, you know, there have been debates about hate crimes, you know, for years, you know, especially sort of in the wake of James Byrd, you know, another hate crime that took place in Texas. Um, you know, about whether or not you actually needed to sort of show that murder was particularly bad because a person was targeted because of, a, you know, a marginalized identity. But, like, this is the reason why you need those things. Brian, I want to get you – I know we're running short on time, so you get a chance to say one last thing about all this. I want to respond to what Theron said about uh, regulations on mentally ill people getting guns. I think in a perfect world, if you pull that, everybody's like, yeah, of course, we want these people who, they're, they're, they're crazy, they're crazy. Okay, of course we shouldn't, we don't want them to have guns. Uh, the issue becomes, who gets to make that determination? If, what panel of people goes, well, yeah, not you. And that gets where it gets to be really, really tricky. I, I think the red flag thing is something that we need to, to look at. I think President Trump sort of opened the door to, to some more background checks today. Uh, look, we all want to get guns out of the hands of people who want to kill crowds of people. We all want that. The, th- the question is, how do we do it in a way that doesn't risk taking away rights? All right. I'm getting down to the last minute, so I want each of you to get a quick something in here. Andra? So a couple of things. I mean, one, I think we have to decide for ourselves as a people what we do with the Second Amendment and whether or not the framers actually meant for us to be able to use guns that are intended to kill people more so than to kill deer. And then I think the second thing when we think about this, you know, a lot of these guys, the ones who are mentally ill, not necessarily the ones involved this weekend, I'm not judging them, but we have these guys in their early 20s um, around the time that if somebody really is going to present mental illness, that's probably the time that it's going to happen. So there are reasons and there are clinically ways that you can sort of determine whether or not this is actually the right, right. time for people to be getting Sarah, you get a last right? No, I think, you know, Brian poses the question, who's the person or entity that creates this panel to have this discussion? It's the president of the United States of America. And I think that he's going to have to go again and have actions towards this and assemble the right people to have this uncomfortable conversation. Jim, one, one last quick summary from you as well. Well, I would say let's, let's, let's watch the state and situation a little bit more and see what comes out. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I want to hold out my, my judgment on that one. But the El Paso one, the El Paso shooting is highly disturbing. And, and Allison, I would say let's watch the legislature next session. We came close to a hate crimes bill passing this last one. We'll see what happens in 2020. I'm out of time. You don't even I don't even have time for you to respond to that. This is political rewind.